Hi, Katie. Hello. How are you doing? Fine. Um, I want to try something out for the intro this week. Okay. Um, I've asked this AI chatbot, ChatGPT, to come up with a script for the opening of the episode. Can we see if it works? I'm sending it to you now. <laughs> okay. This is a terrible idea, by the way. Like, what, what if the script is actually good? Then our job will be made much easier. Okay. Cue the music. Welcome to the Europeans, a podcast about all things European. I'm Katie. And I'm Dominic. We're two friends who love to travel and explore the different cultures and histories of Europe. It's kind of true. <laughs> I suppose so. In each episode, we'll be discussing a different aspect of European culture, diving into the histories and traditions that make Europe such a unique and diverse continent. Yeah, I guess we kind of do that. Today, we're going to be talking about European cuisine. From the delicious pastries of France to the spicy curries of the UK, Europe is home to a wide variety <laughs> of culinary traditions. Well, I mean, this is kind of creepy because we are talking about food this week. How did they know? We're just as boring and predictable as the robot said. <laughs> spicy curries of the UK. I love it. Okay, I'm continuing. <clears throat> One of my personal favourites is Italian food. From pizza and pasta to gelato and espresso, Italy has some of the most iconic and delicious dishes in the world. And let No, I can't do it anymore. Um, well done, ChatGPT. All I told it was to create a script for a podcast about Europe called The Europeans, hosted by two friends called Katie and Dominic. And it came up with that, which is quite impressive. I thought it was horrible. I don't think we should ever ask the robot to write our scripts again. Um, welcome to the Europeans, a proudly human-run podcast about stuff that's been happening around the continent. And yeah, as you said, Dominic, funnily enough, we are actually going to be talking about food this week, just as the chatbot predicted. What's coming up? Well, yeah, kind of. We're not going to really be talking about European cuisine, so to speak, about Katie's love of pizza and pasta and espresso. And the spicy curries of the UK. <laughs> the spicy curries of the UK. But we are going to be talking about food because a few weeks ago, Noma, the incredibly famous restaurant in Copenhagen, and by some rankings, the world's number one restaurant, announced that it would be closing its doors at the end of 2024. Because, it was said, the owner, René Redzepi, has decided that the business is unsustainable. The announcement came amidst mounting criticism of worker conditions in Denmark's restaurant industry with pretty horrific reports of incredibly long hours and unpaid labour and general mistreatment of employees. So we wanted to speak to someone in the Danish fine dining world to try and unpick why this decision has been made and to look more broadly at the state of the restaurant industry in Denmark. And we found the perfect person, Lisa Lint Dunbar, former waiter and restaurant work culture critic, whose Instagram account has become an extraordinary platform for collecting the many personal accounts of abuse in the Danish restaurant industry. We'll be speaking to Lisa later on in the show. But first, it's time for That Thing You've All Missed, Good Week, Bad Week. Good week, bad week. Who has had a good week, Dominic? 
It's been a good week, or even a great week, for the children of Ireland, after the president of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, said in an interview that he thought homework should be banned. I can hear the children of Ireland cheering from here. Yeah, me too. I think I would have loved it. Although maybe I would have developed less at school if I didn't have homework. What do you think? I quite liked homework because I was a massive nerd. Did you? You were one of those. I was one of those. Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> but now that I've got lots of friends who are parents, like I've seen, especially here in France, like kids getting really stressed about homework. And I just see them and I think like, why should six-year-olds be stressing about deadlines? Like, can't they do that when they're grown-ups? It's a good point. The president of Ireland, he said... The time in school is an educational experience and it should get finished at the school. And I mean, if you look at a place like Finland, where they have this internationally celebrated educational system, as we discussed on the podcast about a year ago, they don't give that much homework to kids over there. Mm. There is also not a culture of richer parents paying for extra private tuition for their kids. Kids can have time off after school and develop other interests like sport, music or even just hanging out with their friends. And the president of Ireland suggested exactly that, that kids should be given the free time after school to pursue other creative things. He made this statement about homework whilst being interviewed by a group of kids, actually, on RTE's News Today, which is a current affairs and news programme for children. I think I know who they'd be voting for now if they had a vote. Gonna say, playing to the crowd, Michael. <laughs> Absolutely. So he's clearly saying what the kids want to hear, but he's the president. Does he have the power to make this happen? Well, he, of course, signs laws when they land on his desk, but I don't think his answer to the kids actually means that homework is going to be banned in Ireland anytime soon. Uh-huh. That said... He is an incredibly popular leader in Ireland. In a 2019 survey by YouGov, he was actually voted the third most admired man by Irish people after Barack Obama and David Attenborough. So if he's behind this idea, then I wouldn't be surprised if a wave of politicians swooped in behind him and some momentum built for a proper homework ban. Mm. Although, let's be honest, it's the adults who are voting right, not the kids. So perhaps this won't ever make its way to the top of the political agenda. That said, there does seem to be slowly growing scepticism amongst adults about homework. There are multiple studies suggesting that homework has pretty little advantage for younger children, in particular primary school children. I read a powerful opinion piece from a teacher in the Irish Examiner who thinks that Irish schools are obsessed with homework and that especially for younger kids, it needs to stop. And we need to encourage kids to spend more time outside after school and move, not force them to sit at a desk as soon as they're home to continue working. She cited studies that suggested that homework can lead to boredom, anxiety and stress. And she points out that whilst homework might work for some kids, It increases inequality in society because not every child has a home environment that is suitable for getting their homework done. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about early in the pandemic, I taught some classes online and there were some students who, you know, there were like loads of kids in the bedroom, really cramped living spaces. And of course, like you've got some parents who are able to help and some parents who aren't, right? Yeah. So it seems like there's quite a strong argument against homework for younger kids. What about older kids? Well, in general, from what I've read and from people I've spoken to, including members of my family in the teaching profession, it seems that there's also pushback against homework for older school kids, but it is less clear cut. Homework can have some benefits for 
some older school children, helping them develop independent studying skills outside of the classroom. Probably like it was for you, Katie, by the sounds of things. And homework can also be useful in terms of repeating, revising and recapping things that have been learned at school. If there is homework, then there also seems to be a movement away from giving long tasks. These are seen as unhelpful. Homework, according to studies, is more beneficial when it is no longer than 30 minutes. I think we went to school in the wrong decade, Katie. I think so too. There is still this inequality problem, of course, if you have a quiet home and parents who can help you and encourage you to do your homework. It's more likely to be beneficial for you. And homework can also potentially be a drain on teachers' time, requiring them to follow up on the work, mark it, and then there's also the time spent enforcing that everyone has done their homework, time that probably could be better spent teaching kids, right? Mm. And on a completely different point, but going back to the intro of this show, I imagine homework is going to get harder for teachers to manage in this age of AI and chat GPT. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a tangent, but... I keep reading reports in the newspapers of universities and schools concerned about how many students are using ChatGPT to complete their homework. There was actually a report in the Dutch National Broadcaster last week where the journalists had collected reports from around 250 school children who'd admitted to using ChatGPT to complete their homework quickly. And almost all of them had got away with it. I was talking to someone recently who said that they were able to spot that AI had been used for this student's assignment because the spelling had suddenly become like absolutely perfect. (laughs) Suspicious. Well, yeah, I mean, schools and universities are quickly adapting to this new world and they are finding ways to detect if something has been made by AI. I think there's actually now a bot that can tell you if a piece of text has been made by AI. That's ironic. It is, yeah. But it is quite a Pandora's box. I don't think this is why President Higgins was calling for a ban on homework in Ireland, but um, it is another thing to take into consideration. Anyway, good week for Irish kids who can add a very powerful voice to the fight to ban homework and give them a bit more free time after school. Let's see what happens. Have you done your homework, Katie, and chosen a well-researched someone for our bad week slot? Oh, I'll let you be the judge of that. Um, It has been a bad week for Sweden's attempts to join NATO because of an increasingly bitter row between Sweden and Turkey, which is currently blocking Sweden from joining the club. Uh, You probably remember Sweden and Finland announcing last year that they wanted to join NATO. It's quite a massive deal at the time. Uh, Both Sweden and Finland have been officially neutral countries for decades, But Russia's war on Ukraine has really changed the thinking. And being a member of NATO means being a member of a club where everyone pledges to defend you if you get attacked. And that seems pretty useful when Vladimir Putin is your neighbour. So both Sweden and Finland announced that they want to join NATO. But that doesn't mean that they get to just swan into the club. uh, Because all of the existing members, 30 countries, have to say, OK, Finland and Sweden, you can come in. Okay, so where are we at now? How many countries have already given the okay for Sweden and Finland to join? Uh, All of them except for two countries, Hungary and Turkey. Hungary has promised it's going to step out of the way early this year. We'll see. Uh, But yeah, both Hungary and Turkey have been quite quick to recognise that 
they actually have a lot of power in this situation. So they want to get something out of it. Uh, Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban has always been very happy to play strategy games in situations like this one and, you know, try and extract concessions, as talked about many times on this podcast. Mm. The same is also true of the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, he has quite a history of trying to use these situations to his advantage. So like when you look at the refugee crisis back in 2015, for example, he managed to get quite a lot of stuff that he wanted in exchange for stopping refugees from setting sail from Turkey to Greece. He got billions of euros of aid. He managed to get a fair amount out of it. And what does he want this time in exchange for stepping out of the way of Sweden and Finland's membership? He wants a bunch of people who are currently in both of those countries to be arrested and deported to Turkey. Mm. Uh, so just to massively oversimplify the politics of Turkey, a country that I've spent some time reporting from in the past, there are two groups that Erdogan considers to be huge enemies. One of them is the PKK, the Kurdish militant group. The PKK are considered to be terrorists by the Turkish state and indeed by the EU as well. The other group that Erdogan really hates are known as Gulenists, and these are supporters of Fethullah Gulen, who's a very influential preacher. This guy has been Erdogan's arch nemesis for years. And if you remember the attempted military coup in Turkey back in 2016, Erdogan blamed this guy, Gulen, for the coup, and he launched this crazy purge in which literally tens of thousands of people got arrested or fired from their jobs for allegedly being part of his movement. So Erdogan has these enemies, and he has accused Sweden of sheltering members of these groups. And it's true that some people accused of being Gudenists and people close to the Kurdish cause have sought asylum in Sweden. Uh, Sweden does, by the way, have a pretty big Kurdish diaspora. But the Swedish government has been pretty clear with Erdogan. They've said, like, look, we can't just hand over people that you don't like. These are people who have claimed asylum, who say that you have persecuted them. And every time someone flees from Turkey to Sweden, saying that they're in danger, we need to assess that. That is something for the courts to decide. And the courts in Sweden are independent of the government because that's how things work in a well-functioning democracy. Mm. Back in December, Sweden did actually extradite a member of the PKK to Turkey. But the Supreme Court also blocked the extradition of a different guy who was accused of being a Gulenist coup plotter. Uh, he's a journalist called Budin Kenes, and he was granted asylum in Sweden. And the court said there was a real risk of him being persecuted if he was sent back. So the Swedish government says it just can't interfere in cases like that one. And Erdogan is finding that very frustrating. And then wasn't there also a protest last week that Turkey got very upset about? Yes. So last Saturday, a far-right nutjob politician named Rasmus Panidan set fire to a copy of the Quran in front of the Turkish embassy in Stockholm. I probably don't need to tell you that Turkey is a Muslim country and that burning the holy book of Islam is just incredibly offensive to Muslims. This is for them the holy word of God. Paladan, the politician who did it, he has quite a history of doing this. Uh, he's actually previously sparked riots with his plans to set fire to the Quran. I mean, the man has like a real kind of dangerous idiot vibe to him. Uh, he actually holds both Danish and Swedish citizenship. And he set up far-right parties in both countries, both of which have failed to win seats in any elections. Uh, in the Swedish elections last year, his party got just 156 votes across the entire country. So he really just wants attention. Turkey, of course, got incredibly upset about this Quran burning. 
And there were protests outside the Swedish consulate in Istanbul as a result, with people saying, you know, after this, Sweden should never, ever be allowed to join NATO. But Turkey isn't just mad about the fact that the Quran got burned outside its embassy. It's mad because the Swedish government knew very well that this far-right politician was planning on burning a Quran outside the Turkish embassy. And they let it go ahead. Why did they let that go ahead? Uh, well, because Sweden has unusually strong protections when it comes to stuff around freedom of speech and the right to demonstrate. Paladan, this far-right politician, he had managed to get a police permit to burn the Quran outside the embassy, saying that he was protesting against Islam and what he called Erdogan's attempt to influence freedom of expression in Sweden. And the police are only able to deny these kinds of permits in really exceptional circumstances. So even though Swedish government ministers kept saying, we do not agree with this protest, it is disgusting, we are appalled by this, they said that they couldn't do anything about it. And that, I think, has been quite hard for the Turkish government to understand. So I think this is just one of those stories that's actually a lot more interesting than it first seems, because it's not just about a kind of dry diplomatic row. It's a story about a situation where your principles get in the way of your own interests. Like if Sweden cared less about its own democratic principles, it would just hand over all of these people that Turkey wants behind bars. Like, who cares if they don't deserve it? Oh, well. And Sweden would also say, like, who cares about our free speech principles? The right to protest doesn't matter as much as we said it does. And like, what you're doing is going to get in the way of us joining NATO. So no, you can't do it. I mean, the question of like, whether you should be able to hold protests when they're incredibly offensive, like burning the Quran, that's a whole other debate that we could have, but maybe we should save that one for another day. I see that Sweden are in a bit of a bind. Like they want to join NATO to be able to defend themselves and protect their own democratic values. And they don't want to give away some of those democratic values in order to join NATO. That would be really counterproductive. Yeah, I think it's what's officially known as a pickle. What's that in Swedish? What is that in Swedish? Let me look it up. En saltgurka. Beautiful word. But in general, it doesn't sound that great for Sweden. Is it likely that Turkey are just going to block Sweden's membership to NATO forever? Well, the Quran burning stunt has been incredibly unhelpful and relations between the two countries have got really bad over this. I mean, Sweden's defence minister was supposed to be visiting Turkey and Turkey said, you know what? Don't come. We don't want to see you here. The other thing to bear in mind is that Erdogan is running for re-election right now. And the Turkish economy is in deep, deep crisis. So he's looking around for ways to distract voters from that mess. So this row with Sweden, it's quite helpful. Like he can say, I'm standing up to Sweden over this. I matter on the world stage. Mm. So I don't think he's going to get out of the way anytime soon. If Erdogan loses the election in May, that would be a huge change, not just for this NATO business, obviously, but for world politics in general. So stay tuned. I'm kind of nerdily riveted by this. And I hope I've convinced you to be nerdily riveted by it too. Mm, keeping our eyes out for the 14th of May. I'm a bit worried about this next bit, Dominic, because I'm worried that it's going to make everyone think that we're a really rich and successful podcast which really isn't true. Um, basically what happened is that a ton of amazing people signed up over the holidays to support this show. I guess some people might have heard about us in The Guardian because we had that piece there in December. 
Hi, if you're listening and new listeners from The Guardian. Hi, and thank you so much to The Guardian's Europe correspondent, John Henley. It was an extremely nice article about our little podcast. Uh, But yeah, it means that we have a really long list of people to thank for donating to the show over the past few weeks. And I was wondering if you could do the honours, because it's quite a long list of people and you are a professional singer, so you've got quite good lung capacity. Can we share it? (laughs) Okay. Thank you to Claire Pershin, Yulia Karpova, Odenbacher Jensen, Rob Ioannou, Michaela Georgiana Mircian, Hans Hansen and his lovely husband Mark, Cindy McGill, Federico Fregosi, Ursula Bergner, and you can take over now. Vincent Puny, André Tuch, Thomas, Bo Usden, Sarah, Amanda C, Tina, Samuel Schupbach, Anna de Valencia, Sam Baker and Christian Calaguas, for whom this donation is an extremely late. Happy 50th birthday from Steve. It's not extremely late. We're extremely late in saying that it's 50th birthday from Steve. (laughs) Sorry, Steve. Thank you all so much. It really makes a difference to what we can do in 2023. If it wasn't for you lovely bunch of people, we wouldn't still be here. And in all honesty, despite all these lovely people, we've got a budget and we are still short for 2023 based on what we want to be making and so that we can pay our producers properly so if you want to join please do head to patreon.com forward slash europeans podcast if you are someone who considers themselves to be a quote-unquote foodie You may have seen headlines recently announcing that the super famous and super expensive Danish restaurant Noma is going to be closing its doors at the end of next year. It's going to be continuing to exist as some kind of online brand. Uh, Right now on its website, you can buy really expensive vinegar and not much else. But apparently they're going to do some interesting things with pickles. There you go, Dominic. Pickles again. This is the pickle episode. Saltgurkes, you mean? Well, that's in Swedish. Look it up in Danish. A pickle in Danish. In pickle. <laughs> there you go. Um, if you haven't heard of Noma, it became this super influential restaurant over the past 20 years. It has three Michelin stars, and under its star chef and co-owner, René Redzepi, it helped to create a new movement in the culinary world. It was called the New Nordic Movement. The idea was to celebrate locally foraged ingredients rather than, you know, like imported truffles from Italy or whatever. So Noma became famous for these really beautiful and extremely creative dishes. And extremely expensive. And extremely expensive. But there were things like celeriac shawarma and these like beautiful beetles made out of fruit. And these really old carrots, which I hope were more tasty than they sound. And (laughs) Noma became the heart of this like really thriving Scandinavian food scene. It's repeatedly been named the best restaurant in the world. People would go on these like food pilgrimages to Copenhagen just to go to Noma, where I think you can expect to pay at least 500 euros for a tasting menu. Sounds pretty great. Have you ever wanted to go eat there? I've never considered spending 500 euros on a tasting menu, no. (laughs) But if you had a spare 500 euros, I mean, to be honest, without knowing that much about it, on the face of it, if I did have that kind of money, of course I'd want to go and eat at the world's best restaurant. But I have changed my mind about that after reading in recent days about why Noma is closing its doors next year. Noma's chef, René Redzepi, he said that to make the food that he wants to make while giving all of his staff decent working conditions and proper pay, is unsustainable. And like a lot of people who don't know that much about what happens behind the scenes and fine dining, when I read that, I was just like, 
how is it possible that you can charge people 500 euros for a dinner and still not have enough money to pay your staff properly? And it also begs the question of, well, if he's saying that it's not possible to pay people properly, does that mean that he hasn't been paying people properly until now? And it turns out that that is, to some extent, true. Noma is not alone in having received a lot of criticism over its working conditions. Other high-end restaurants in Copenhagen and internationally have also faced a lot more scrutiny over this of late. But Noma has had a lot of bad headlines, including over its huge reliance on unpaid interns, who came to work there because, you know, it's such an impressive thing to have on your CV, the name of this restaurant. And then they got there and they did stuff like shelling walnuts on these crazy, sometimes 16-hour shifts, often really not learning very much, and essentially just doing manual labour for a hugely expensive restaurant for free. Noma and its chef, Redzepi, have tried to defend themselves in the face of this criticism. They started paying their interns in October, and they've said that they have acknowledged systemic problems and tried to address them. But the criticism has persisted. And once you start reading about it, there's something very unsettling about it. You know, this contrast between the sumptuous luxury of the dining room with all of these exquisite dishes that you get to enjoy, and then these allegations about what's been happening behind the scenes. We had a lot of questions about what has been going on, and we found the perfect person to ask about them. Lisa Lynn Dunbar has worked in the Copenhagen restaurant industry for years. She's worked at cafes, wine bars, Michelin-starred restaurants, although she hasn't, I should be clear, actually worked at Noma itself. And Lisa has emerged over the past year or so as a critic of the working culture in the industry and as an advocate for better workers' rights. We gave her a call in Copenhagen. You worked in Copenhagen restaurants yourself for a very long time. Was there a moment when you realised personally that something had gone very, very wrong? I will say that it wasn't a single moment. It wasn't sort of an epiphany that happened from one day to the other. Over time, having started my work life in the restaurant industry at the age of 14 as a dishwasher, while I was growing up just to earn money and sort of consecutively through my teens up into my 20s. And now, um, recently, I sort of tell myself that I finally left at the age of 29. I think what really gave me the hint was that I experienced how my health was deteriorating rapidly and how I became quite isolated over time. And that's not something you recognize overnight from one day to the other, but it has been in the past three years that I've really begun to understand what it was that was going on and the amount of exploitation and abuse. And so I'm still finding the words for it. I'm still getting it, but um, my perspective has definitely changed drastically in the past three years. And last year, you started asking other people who worked in this industry to share their experiences with you on Instagram. What kind of stories were they sharing with you? As you can probably imagine, it was everything under the sun. It was everything from wage theft to being pressured to have a sexual relationship with a superior, corporal punishments and humiliations, cultures of abuse, and everyday life really saturated by violence and ugliness and nasty working conditions. It feels like it's taken a really long time for this scandal to break. I mean, for most of the past two decades, we've read about Noma just being the greatest restaurant in the world, much more than 
about its abusive working practices. You've talked previously about a culture of fear and silence in the fine dining industry. Why do you think it's been so difficult for people to speak out? The knowledge that I have and my lived experience is isolated to the context of Denmark, of Copenhagen. And what I know here is connected to the Danish labor market model, which is a model where by the state, there isn't governed a minimum wage. There isn't governed a maximum of working hours per week. This is something that has to be voluntarily negotiated between the representatives of the two parties of the labor market being employers and workers. And because that hasn't happened in the restaurant industry in Denmark, what we're experiencing is effectively social dumping where it's employers who are dominating the contracts, meaning that if you were to speak up, if you were to put your foot down, if you were to ask for working conditions to be different, you're basically signing your own termination because you have no protection whatsoever. That definitely is something that is part of the cause. Then again, we have a very strict militant hierarchy in restaurants understood as the brigade system. It's very clear who has authority and everyone else is not to think. They're just to do. And I look back on my career and I, to be honest, I never really remember a moment where we openly discussed our working conditions, like, how is this to you? Do you think this is fair? Could it be different? That imagination was never really present. And so you keep quiet. For years, there have been lots of foreign hospitality workers drawn to Denmark to gain experience in these super famous restaurants. Have those foreign workers found themselves particularly vulnerable to abuse? Well, most definitely. And you can just imagine, you've already got sort of very precarious working conditions for people who are EU workers and then add on to that, that your residency permit and your whole foundation of being allowed to stay in the country is bound up on your employment. And so they're trapped in a different way. There's an addition of oppression and control and limits to their work life here. And There is such a lack of information, such a lack of transparency about the Danish labor market model, about the few rights that they might have and how they can use them. And people um, who work 80 hours a week, what they're also is that they're exhausted, right? So they barely have time to get rest or see their family or do anything else outside of work that gives them joy. And Could you imagine that the first thing that they do when they're not working is to sit down and spend hours and hours and hours trying to figure out how (laughs) the Danish system works, you know? So exhausted people, exhausted workers are understandably, and with all of my sympathy, also exhausted citizens. Like, it's difficult to take part in resolving your situation. When we think about the bosses of these restaurants, I mean, there have been a lot of accusations of physical and verbal bullying by chefs like Rene Redzepi of Noma, although he, he says he's done a lot of learning. Um, but the stereotype of a, a shouty, temperamental chef, it's really well known. Why do you think so many top chefs are like this? Is it just that the kitchen attracts these kinds of personalities or is it something to do with I don't know, like chefs moving up through the system themselves and getting treated horribly themselves so that by the time they become the boss, maybe it seems normal. Certainly there is this story that just will not die, that that is how it is. And 
I am a victim of this as well. And so now I will victimize the people who I'm in charge of. There's several things to understand. Again, I, I mentioned it a bit earlier, the brigade system and the structure of that. It is something that is derived from military hierarchies. You have these regiments, right? So it's very clear who has authority and you have these specialized roles all the way down. And it's about being blindly obedient. Think of it as an army. If a soldier suddenly defies a decision and uses their own creativity to act differently, that would never fly. Like that is completely unaccepted. What lies in that mentality is also, it all comes down to efficiency. There is always this sense of urgency. And for that to effectively work, you have to be a doer, you have to do as you're told. And so a lot of that happens from above with force, with a lot of force. And it excuses so much behavior because it has to go fast. You have seconds to carry out a task and everyone else is dependent on you carrying out that task. I mean, what we've seen with Zeppi Inclusive is that he and others, like David Chang did it as well in his book, like come out and admit to their sins. But what they're confusing that with is like, that is not necessarily rectifying that. You know, they just want to, okay, I've now admitted to this, let's move forward. But you know, what my point has also been is that, well, Noam has existed for 20 years. How about all of the people you've stolen wages from? How about all the people you've harmed and discriminated through different systems of oppression? And there's just no conversation about that. So to me, that isn't really being fully honest and willing to be confronted by the violence that they have practiced. And when that doesn't happen, I don't have a lot of faith in them being able to actually change their ways. Do you know of anyone or any restaurants that are actually finding a way to serve fine dining to people in a more sustainable way for the workers? Like, Are there any other good examples? No. That's sad. If we think about it, fine dining is extractive and fine dining has its sort of value because of its exclusivity and because how limited it is. And oh, so many of these fucking places will not accept that they are for the 1%, that they are for the few. I still have this sense that Noma and places like that, geranium, maybe a little less, or alchemist, like it's inclusive to everyone, but it isn't. Not only is it not sustainable, the practices that they've based their success on are unethical. I really mean it when I say abolish fine dining. Do you see Rene Redzepi's decision to close the doors to Noma as a sign that your advocacy work is being effective? Did you have any feeling of relief when you heard that the decision had been made to close the doors to the public? Some or quite a few people who kind of wrote me in congratulations that I closed Noma and stuff. I don't believe that. Listen, I might in certain circles have become a voice, but if we look at it on a broader, more global scale, people in the States, specifically Black women, have for a long time been on the front line of saying like, this is our working conditions. And I'm standing on the shoulders of so many other people and a lot of people I don't even know. But going back to your other question about being relieved about Noma, not at fucking all. It's such a hoax. It's a media stunt. It's a cash grab. 
Basically, I see it as they've extracted all of the value they could from one business model for 20 years, and now they're going into a different business model that they're just going to extract more value from. He's saying that they want to be sustainable while he's saying that they want to open up like a factory, a, a product line, basically living off of the brand of Noma. I have very little faith in them actually understanding the scale of the problem. And there's still been no apology to all of the people who have been through Noma and Reni Redzepi and Noma-affiliated restaurants. A lot still clearly needs changing in the restaurant industry, but I'm wondering if the shortage of hospitality workers after COVID that we're seeing in lots of countries at the moment might actually end up changing the power dynamics for the better. Like, I'm just wondering if the fact that these workers are in high demand means they might be able to take some power back and demand better conditions. Are you hopeful for progress on that front? What the pandemic did was clearly visualizing for a lot of workers how precarious their working conditions actually were because they were just quitted from one day to the other. And so all of this like family aesthetic and we're family here, that became very obvious that that was a lie, that was a myth because people who'd worked for... Uh, restaurateurs, employers for ages, like years and years and years, were just sent an email where it said, dear employee, dear staff member, no name, just like this generic email that was sent out to everyone. And I think rightfully so, that created a lot of anger, that prompted a lot of rage. And anger is good. Like if you're not angry, you're not paying attention is something I often feel. And so COVID did bring about a new consciousness about that. However, there's still so far to go because it doesn't really change that workers in the industry need work and that a lot of employers are not really getting that. There isn't a lack of workers. There are a lack of workplaces with good working conditions. And every time I see like an advert or somebody putting up a job ad, it's always about we have good staff food, or you can have a weekend off every other week. It's not really about saying we have pension here, we have health insurance, we stick to 50-hour work weeks maximum. And so it's still dominated by the employer. And yeah, maybe the power dynamic has shifted a little bit, but far from enough, far, far, far from enough. Lisa's Instagram is a really good place for learning more about the treatment of workers in the restaurant industry and what needs changing. You can find her there at Lisa Lind Dunbar. And um, taking us seamlessly into isolation inspiration, I kept coming across this TV show called The Bear when I was reading up about this fine dining scandal. Have you seen it? Yeah, I loved it. Oh. Yeah, it's about an Italian-American family who run a kind of amazing sandwich bar in Chicago that's also totally chaotic behind the scenes. And uh, it's really also about the hideous culture in a kitchen. Definitely made me, I think, understand a bit more about how horrible conditions can be in a kitchen. I'm going to check it out. So Dominic, you seem to have been hard at work in your singing job for most of the waking hours that we've been away. 
Uh, but what have you been enjoying in your downtime? Yeah, I was in Italy for most of the time we've had off, which was really nice. I spent a lot of most of my time in Bolzano in the north and then was down on the Amalfi coast for a few days at the end. And while I was there, I tried to immerse myself in a bit of Italian culture in between rehearsals, even when it came to my Netflix viewing. So I ended up watching the most recent film by the great Italian director Paolo Sorrentino. I was absolutely obsessed with his film La Grande Bellezza, which is this whirlwind of a film that paints an incredibly colorful and almost fantastical picture of Rome in the 1960s. Go and watch it immediately if you haven't. Love that film. The music is so good as well. Anyway, I also liked this most recent film, which is on Netflix and won the Grand Jury Prize at the Venice Film Festival in 2021. It's called The Hand of God. It's set in Naples in the 1980s, around the time that Diego Maradona moves to Naples to play for the Neapolitan football team. Don't let that put you off if you're not a football fan. It's not a football movie. It's really a coming-of-age story about a teenage boy, apparently loosely based on the life of the director himself, who doesn't have many friends, but has a pretty eclectic and sometimes hilarious extended family and some rather kooky neighbors who make it a very lively, funny, and moving watch. It's on Netflix. It's called The Hand of God. I'm going to check that out. What have you enjoyed, Katie? I want to recommend a podcast reported by our very own producer, Katz Laszlo, for a little show called Radio Lab. You might have heard of it. It went out last week on Radio Lab and also in the feed of Rough Translation, which is an NPR show that we have worked with before here at the Europeans. It is a great podcast about people's stories and experiences around the world. This episode that Katz reported is the first in a two-part series that she's been working on called Under the Counter. And it is about trying to get abortion pills into Ukraine both for women who are pregnant after being raped by Russian soldiers and for women who need them for whatever reason. I think that people's health and in particular women's ability to have control over what happens to their bodies is something that tends to get forgotten quite quickly in a war. You know, like so much of the emphasis is on getting weapons and getting bandages, these immediate things that are so obviously needed, you know? Mm. So I'm really, really proud of her for telling this story and for telling it so well. Uh, it's also a very nerve-wracking, edge-of-your-seat kind of story. I won't spoil it, but it involves smuggling. It is extremely worth your time. And the second episode is coming out, I think, next week. I can't wait to hear it. I strongly echo Katie's words on this. It's a really, really good episode. Well done, Kat. I've got a happy ending for you from Poland this week, where researchers at the Institute of Mammal Biology announced that they had spotted the largest herd of bison they'd ever seen on the outskirts of the immense Białowieża primeval forest. They were using a drone, and with this drone they spotted around 170 bison congregating at the end of December. They are only announcing it now because they didn't want a herd of photographers to go and find them and disturb <laughs> their routine. But it's very exciting news. Oh, that's great. I love a bison. I do too. And it's quite big news because the previous record that these researchers had found was 136. Uh, so 170 is a lot of them. And it's very happy news because it's yet another sign that the bison population in Poland is becoming more stable, which is quite a bounce back considering they were hunted 
almost to extinction in the wild in Poland and much of Europe in the early 20th century. Mm. Poland now actually has the largest bison population in Europe. And bison are so important for our ecosystem, as we've discussed before on this podcast. They are described by Rewilding Europe as ecosystem engineers and a keystone species. And that basically means that they do loads of things to the landscape, eating and pooping that like helps a wild variety of other species. I really wish that I helped other species by eating and pooping. <laughs> Maybe you do. Who knows? Um, do they know why so many bison were like hanging out together in this crowd at the end of December? Well, it's the holiday period, so they like to no. <laughs> they don't like to get together. Um, scientists think it was because of the sudden onset of winter and a drop in temperature, at which point it's best if they stick together to keep warm and safe. So Aww. happy, warm, safe bison. Congrats. We will be back next week. I'm so pleased to be able to say that again. We will be back next week when I think we will probably be trying to get our heads around Germany's policy towards Ukraine. Don't miss it. In the meantime, you can find us hanging in there on Twitter still just about at Europeanspod and on Instagram at Europeanspodcast. This episode was produced by Katie Lee and Wojciech Alexiak. Thank you both. Have a good week, everyone. Farewell. Bye. Bye.